I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses 15 through to 23, but I want to read from verse 13 all the way to 27 as um, this is the concluding portion of the Sermon on the Mount, so it all fits together. So I want to read from verse 13 to 27 so you see the context surrounding verses 15 to 23. So Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In your bulletin, I've written a prayer, or I haven't written a prayer, I've placed a prayer. Usually I will pray after I read the scriptures in light of the sermon, but I thought it would be good for all of us to pray a prayer about receiving God's word before the sermon is preached. And so let's pray this prayer together before we begin to look at this passage. Almighty God and most merciful Father, We humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. Matthew seven fifteen to 23 is what we're looking at this morning. We as humans, in general, um, can often become unbalanced in life. And as Christians, this also can be very true. We have this tendency to prioritize or obsess over certain things that aren't deserving of such focus and obsession. For example, there are certain Christian movements that um, tend to define themselves over things that are of secondary importance. They're important things. But they're not the most important. But we can so easily make these things everything to the point where our movement is defined by them. And so, for example, we have some Christian movements that tend to be consumed with supernatural spiritual gifts. Everything about their movement revolves around whether or not you have manifested these gifts. Now, these gifts are not bad. They are the gifts of the Spirit. But when they become everything, when they become the defining marker of what a Christian is, they become destructive. Or there are movements that 
tend to be obsessed with the demonic. They've had some kind of demonic encounter, and, and then from that point on, everything becomes about the demonic. To the point where you begin to see a demon behind everything. Now, I don't want to downplay the demonic whatsoever. The fact is, um, I know some of you have had real encounters with the demonic, and I know people who have had real encounters with demons. We need to be aware of the demonic, and I would argue that our typical group that we are a part of tends to be ignorant of this reality. We need to be aware of the demonic and be discerning, but the mistake is when we become consumed with such things, and we begin to see everything through the demonic lens, but we tend to forget that we have three major enemies, not just the demonic. Yes, the devil, but also the world and our sinful flesh. Sometimes it is just our sinful flesh at work and there are no demons remotely involved. There are other movements that become consumed with false teachers or false prophets, heresy. It's like the goal is all about finding and exposing heresy and false teachers in our world. Now, I think this latter example can sometimes tend to define us, Reformed evangelicals. We seem to be consumed with exposing false prophets and false teachers to the point where we use the word heretic and false prophet so loosely that we can place that title upon someone simply because we have a theological disagreement. I'm always amazed when I hear Christians using the word heretic or false teacher so flippantly. If I ask someone who does this, what actually makes someone a heretic or a false teacher, it's truly amazing how ignorant they are in really knowing what makes someone a false teacher. It's clear that they haven't spent a lot of time in the scriptures studying this issue and coming to the proper categories of what the Bible actually says in regards to false teachers and heretics. Like, like, for example, if a Christian brother or sister has a different position on social issues than you, it doesn't make them a false teacher or a heretic. They may be wrong on their understanding of said social, social issue, but that doesn't make them a false prophet. In other words, we use the word false teacher or false prophet way looser than the scriptures actually do. See, I think one of the weaknesses within evangelicalism is there, is some, there sometimes tends, tends to be a sectarian spirit. That is, there's a tendency to always be dividing over issues and creating our own little tribes rather than seeing the unity and the commonality that we do have in Christ and working through our differences together as actually brothers and sisters, not enemies. See, I don't want to have a sectarian spirit, and neither should you. I want to strive for the unity of the one holy Catholic Church. Now, make, let me be clear. I didn't say Roman Catholic Church. I said holy Catholic Church. That is the holy, universal, apostolic church. The church throughout the ages. The church throughout history. I want to strive for the unity of that one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. You see, there are two extremes in the Christian world that, in my opinion, are wrong and unhealthy. The one extreme is to use the title false teacher or heretic way too loosely. And one is always, always dividing over secondary and third tier issues. The other extreme is to be so committed to unity that you're willing to compromise on almost anything theological for the sake of maintaining unity and love. That's also wrong. There is the middle road, which I believe is the right road, and that road isn't always easy to discern. But that road is committed to pursuing unity while at the same time not compromising on core Christian beliefs that without them you wouldn't have Christianity. You see, in our circles, I think the extreme we fall into is the tendency to see and label people heretics and false teachers far too quickly. 
Now that being said, the fact of the matter is, the scriptures call us to be discerning and wise, because there are in fact false prophets and teachers who desire to lead people astray from the truth for their own selfish gain. And this is precisely what we see here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's no coincidence that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in his concluding section, actually addresses the reality of false prophets. And here's why. You can't live the virtuous, wise, righteous life if you're led astray by false prophets. So we're in the concluding section of the Sermon on the Mount. And in this section... Jesus gives us his final exhortations where he summons his hearers to respond rightly. We saw last week that Jesus, from verses 13 to 27, is presenting before his hearers two ways. Two ways. And every human being walks one of these ways. And what he does is use three different images to convey these two ways of living. And all of these images capture something unique, but they're also interconnected. Each image conveys both an external appearance and an internal reality. So last week we saw that the Y gate appears to be the better option. Why? Because the way is easy. But it's the easy way that leads to destruction. Whereas the narrow gate doesn't look appealing because it's the hard way. But it's the hard way that leads to life. So each image captures an external appearance, but also an internal reality. And it's the same for this week. False prophets will appear as though they are but sheep. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Further, we saw last week that each image image focuses on doing the will of God. So the first image calls us to walk the narrow way. That is God's will, God's way. The second image, Jesus speaks to the true prophet as the one who does the will of God. The third image describes the wise builder as the one who hears Jesus' words and does them. So each image calls us to this whole person righteousness that is striving and committed to living according to the will of God. And then finally, we saw also the urgency in which Jesus speaks in light of the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is over the horizon. And the question is, are you ready for its coming? And because it's coming, we're being called to a decisive response in following Jesus. There's no middle ground. There's no fence sitting with Jesus. You are either for Christ or you're against him. As I ended my sermon last week with this question, will you simply hear Jesus' words this morning or will you hear his words and do as he said? Enter the narrow gate. There is an urgency in Jesus' final words. It demands response and action. So last week, Jesus presented before us the wide gate and the narrow gate, the easy way and the hard way, the way that leads to destruction and the way that leads to life. And he calls each of us to enter the narrow gate and walk the hard way that leads to life. And that hard way is the righteousness that Jesus describes here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's this whole person righteousness where both the external and the internal matters. And it's this whole person righteousness that leads to a virtuous, flourishing life, both in this life and the life to come. But as we know, There are many threats in this fallen world that strive to keep us from walking in the ways of Jesus, that strive to prevent us from walking the narrow and hard way. And one of those threats 
is that of false prophets and teachers. See, I don't think it's a coincidence that right after Jesus calls his followers to enter the narrow gate and walk the hard way, he then warns them about false prophets. Why? Because false prophets have the ability and the power to lead you astray. So let's zoom in now and focus on this section in verses 15 to 23. Now what Jesus does here is he gives his main exhortation and then he provides two illustrations to help his hearers be able to live according to his main exhortation. Okay, so what is his main exhortation? Well, it's the first thing he says in verse 15. Beware of false prophets. That's the main exhortation. This is a call, a call to be wise and discerning, to not be naive. It's amazing how easy we humans can be naive. And it's amazing how easily the sheep of God can be naive and undiscerning. This is a call to wisdom to be on the lookout for false prophets and teachers. But why? Well, because at first glance, false teachers don't look like false teachers. They could look like me. They don't look dangerous at first. Their appearance is deceptive. This is what Jesus says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They're deceptive from the get-go. They intentionally look gentle and peaceful like sheep. But inwardly, they want to devour you. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. You see, what is the goal of a ravenous wolf? Well, a ravenous wolf wants to destroy and consume. They have the appearance of sheep, but inwardly they want to destroy and feed upon your flesh. We're told in the scriptures that Satan presents himself as an angel of light. That is, he's deceptive in his works. Would it not be the same when it comes to his human lieutenants? Beware, Christians. Now, I think it's important that we actually ask, what are the markers of a false prophet? How do you actually know that someone is a false prophet? What, what actually makes someone a false teacher? And so here's what I'm going to do. I, I want to take a wide lens and look at the New Testament scriptures to give us an idea of the proper categories for what a false teacher is. And then I want us to look at how Jesus is describing a false teacher here in the Sermon on the Mount. So what is a false teacher according to the New Testament? Well, let me start by saying what isn't a false teacher. We throw around the word false teacher way too loosely, and I want us to tighten it up a little bit because I think the scriptures do. So what it's not. One, a false prophet isn't a Christian leader who has failed morally. Sometimes true, godly Christian leaders fail morally. King David is a perfect example of this. If a Christian leader has failed morally and repents and seeks restoration, that's the sign of a regenerate Christian. But if a Christian leader lives in unrepentant wickedness, those are signs of a false teacher. Secondly, a false prophet isn't someone you simply disagree with over a theological or social matter. We have lots of Christian brothers and sisters in the Lord who have different beliefs and traditions than us. And though we may disagree with some of those beliefs and practices, there still are brothers and sisters in Christ. Some examples of this would be one's view on baptism, spiritual gifts, ecclesial authority, the relationship between church and state. That's a big one right now. The role of women in ministry. Not all Christians see eye to eye on these things. But these differences don't make the other camp false teachers. They're not our enemies, but our family. 
And families sometimes have disagreements, and we need to learn to have family discussions that are wholesome over these matters. Thirdly, a false prophet isn't someone who has theological error. That is, teaching theological error doesn't outright make you a false teacher. It might make you an ignorant teacher who needs more learning, but it doesn't automatically mean you're a false teacher. You see, the Christian life is one of a journey and growth in the knowledge of God, which means that many of us, when we first trusted in Jesus, had some really wrong beliefs pertaining to God, and even now, many of us still have wrong beliefs pertaining to God. If theological error is all that is necessary to deem someone a false teacher, then when I was in my early 20s, I would have been a false teacher. Because there were things that I believed in my 20s about God that I no longer believe. Because my knowledge and theological understanding of God has deepened and developed. Now, of course, there are some theological beliefs that one must believe in order to be considered a Christian. Like, if I was in my early 20s and I was preaching that Jesus isn't the, div the, the divine Son of God, well, that is heretical, and I'm not a Christian. But in general, theological error doesn't automatically mean you're dealing with a false prophet or teacher. It simply might mean that that person should stop teaching and go learn a little bit more. So what is a false prophet according to the scriptures? Well, there are two big ideas when it comes to false prophets and teachers. And I want to make this clear. This is just a very general observation. We're not going to dig deep into this this morning. But there are two big ideas when it comes to false prophets and teachers. One, they teach destructive heresies that are contrary to the core tenets and morality of Christianity and two, they themselves indulge in wickedness and perversions, and they prey on people to do the same. Okay, let me say that again. They teach destructive heresies that are contrary to the core tenets and morality of Christianity, and two, they themselves indulge in wickedness and perversions. They prey upon people. So there you have both theological error and wicked behavior. They go together in the New Testament. Okay? Let me give you two examples. 2 Peter 2, 1-3, Peter says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So they're bringing in destructive heresies. This is the, the truth aspect, the error, right? In regards to truth, they're also denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And then we, we see the behavioral aspect, verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They lead others into their own sensuality, and in their greed, they exploit people. You can think of a lot of prosperity gospel preachers who fit that description. So you have both heretical teaching, destructive heresies, and also wicked behavior. They engage in sensuality and exploit people because of their greed. One other example, Jude 3 to 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And now he describes them. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality 
and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They pervert the grace of God. That is, they use the grace of God to justify their sexual immorality and all forms of sensuality. You know, there are the amount of professing supposed Christian leaders who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. There's a lot. In the name of love and acceptance, they promote all forms of sensuality. For example, I watched this video this past week of a a priest, I don't know which denomination, but a priest in his church service interviewing both a five-year-old girl and a drag queen. And he said to this five-year-old girl, I can't remember the drag queen's name, but he said to this five-year-old girl that one of the reasons this drag queen was a hero of his in the faith was because this drag queen was a perfect example of what Paul described in Romans 12 about not being conformed to the patterns of this world. Now, just as that man is not actually a woman, so that priest, is not actually a representative of God. He's not just promoting evil, and I'm not afraid to say this, he's promoting the demonic in the name of God. He's promoting all forms of sensuality because of grace. John also gives us examples of false teachers where he says in 2 John 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. They reject the incarnation of Jesus and the return of Jesus in the flesh. And so in general, I could say more, but in general, according to the New Testament, false teachers are individuals who teach destructive heresies like denying the gospel, Galatians 1, the incarnation, the core tenets of our faith, and indulge in sensuality and prey upon the vulnerable. That's what a false teacher is according to the New Testament. Now, what about in the Sermon on the Mount? How is Jesus referring to false prophets? Well, there are some clues. For one, he says that false prophets bear bad fruit. Two, false prophets do not do the will of God. And we're going to look at what these mean soon. Three, we see at the end, false prophets are workers of lawlessness. And in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the false prophet is the one who promotes a righteousness that is contrary to the righteousness that Jesus teaches. In other words, the false prophet in the Sermon on the Mount are the Pharisees who were committed to external obedience to God's law, but were inwardly ravenous wolves. And so Jesus calls us as his followers to be wise and discerning because there are false prophets disguised as sheep but are actually wolves seeking to devour us. And then after his main exhortation, he provides two illustrations to help us discern whether or not someone is a false prophet. He gives us guidance, so to speak. And the first thing he tells us is, look out for the bad fruit. Look out for the bad fruit. Look at verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, if you notice in the illustration, at either end of the illustration is the same statement. You will recognize them by their fruits. That's the key. Now, in the middle, he asks a rhetorical question and then comes to some logical conclusions. So the question is, are grapes gathered? from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And of course, the answer is what? No, right? Grapes don't grow from thorn bushes and figs don't come from thistles. It's utterly impossible 
for grapes to be gathered from thorn bushes, and the same goes for figs from thistles. In the same way, healthy trees can only bear good fruit, and diseased trees can only bear bad fruit. In fact, it's, it's utterly impossible for a healthy tree to bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree to bear good fruit. And further, Jesus says that every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And this, of course, is an allusion to God's judgment against false prophets. So as followers of Jesus, we can recognize a false prophet by the kind of fruit they produce. But there seems to be a contradiction with this illustration. It seems that Jesus suggests that we will recognize them by their external, right? Their fruit. But he had just told us these false prophets will present themselves externally as sheep. So how in the world will we recognize them by their fruit if they're being deceptive? Well, here's what I think Jesus is saying. It takes time for a fruit to grow and show what kind of fruit it is. But inevitably, the fruit will show its true nature. In the same way, false teachers will present themselves as sheep, but a wolf can only hide his identity for so long. At some point, his true nature will be revealed, and that's why there is this call to discern and be wise. Also, we need to think about what Jesus means by fruit. Fruit in this context isn't the number of followers one has, or the giftedness of the prophet, or the success of his ministry. Fruit is parallel with the second illustration in verse 21, where Jesus says, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That is, their fruit will reveal whether or not they are doing the will of God or not doing the will of God. The fruit here is in reference to their character, not their abilities, and not even how they may be used by God. See, the entire sermon is about whole person righteousness where both the internal and the external are in harmony with one another, which means their fruit will, re will really reveal what kind of righteousness they are living according to. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Beware of bad fruits. Then Jesus gives us a second illustration. And you could say it like this. Don't be swayed by the wow factor. Don't be swayed by the wow factor. In verse 21 to 23, here he contrasts those who merely profess faith with their mouths and even do the miraculous with those who actually do the will of God. So look at verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus makes it very clear that one's profession ultimately means nothing before him. You can say, Lord, Lord, until the cows come home, but it does not make a difference. False Teachers and prophets will use the name of God all the time. They will make a living of professing the name of Jesus. But Jesus makes clear it's only those who do the will of his Father that will enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is also true when it comes to true saving faith. As James tells us that faith without works is dead. See, Jesus is contrasting between just mere talk and actual action. It's only those who do the will of God that are actually prophets of God, while those who invoke God's name are just actors. And in the same way, it's only those who do the will of God that are actually children of God, while those who invoke his name are just actors. That's the weight of what Jesus is trying to get across. And Jesus says, beware of such people. But Jesus doesn't stop there. 
He goes even further. Even those who do the miraculous can be false teachers. Look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and and cast out demons in your name and, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is actually shocking. On the day of judgment, which is alluded to with the words on that day, these false teachers will say to Jesus, but Lord, didn't we do the miraculous in your name? I mean, we cast out demons and prophesied and performed wonders in your name. And notice that Jesus' response isn't, no, you didn't. He doesn't say that. He doesn't deny the possibility that they actually had done the miraculous in his name. What he denies is him ever knowing them. Which means it's very possible that they did in fact cast out demons in Jesus' name. It's possible that they did do mighty works in his name. That should be a major warning to us. Because Jesus is implying that it's possible to do the miraculous in the name of Jesus and never actually know or be known by Jesus. In other words, someone doing the miraculous, it has no bearing on whether that person actually truly represents Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. God spoke through an ass in the Old Testament. Do you not think that he can speak through a wicked man or use a wicked man? In fact, we have examples in the scriptures of wicked men being used by God. For example, the scriptures seem to indicate that Judas did all the same things the other disciples did when Jesus sent them out. Do you remember the disciples when they came back from their mission? They told Jesus with such excitement, even the demons obey us. And most likely, Judas was given that same power. But secretly, Judas was a snake. Another example in the New Testament is Caiaphas himself. Caiaphas, who who was the main driving force behind the murder of Jesus in the spirit of God actually prophesied the death of Jesus. In John eleven forty nine to 52, uh, the, the religious leaders are gathered together and they are, they are scheming on how to kill Jesus. And this is what we read. This is what Caiaphas said. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, that is the other religious leaders, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John gives his commentary. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The man who had Jesus murdered prophesied in the Spirit of God that Jesus would die for the nation. You see, it's possible to be used by God and not be of God. Now, why does Jesus declare these false prophets Why does he declare them to be false, even though they did the miraculous? Or at least it appears they did the miraculous. Well, it's because of how they lived. You see this in the last statement Jesus makes in verse 23. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. John tells us that sin is lawlessness. Though these prophets say, Lord, Lord, and even prophesy and cast out demons in the name of Jesus, they are ravenous wolves because they are workers of lawlessness. They love sin. They have no regard for God's moral law. They have no regard for the righteousness that Jesus articulates in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, 
We don't determine who's a faithful teacher or a false teacher based upon God's use of them, but rather their personal holiness and character. And that's why Jesus says, I never knew you. And that is a scathing statement. That word knew conveys intimacy, relationship. When, when, when I say I know you, or when you say I know you, it's, it's describing an intimacy with that person that is unique. And Jesus is saying to these false prophets, I never knew you. That is, it's not that there was a, there was a time when I knew you and you then abandoned me. No, no, no. There was never a time where you were known to me and I was known to you. There was never a relationship between me and you. And so as a disciple of Jesus Christ, who seeks to live according to the righteousness that Jesus sets forth in the Sermon on the Mount, he calls us to beware of false prophets. He calls us to be discerning. To recognize them by their fruits. He warns us about false prophets who will use God's name and even be used by God. But are in fact workers of lawlessness. To end off, I want to give some instruction. On how you can protect yourself from what I would call false prophet deception. Ways in which you can be wiser and more discerning as a Christian in regards to who you listen to and who you follow. I want to give you three things that I believe will help protect you from ravenous wolves because there are ravenous wolves. And there are, I don't know if there's more, but they're just easier to access today because of the internet. The first thing I want to say to you is this, to help you. Learn the history of your Christian faith. I'm not saying you need to be a history expert. But so many of our problems theologically as evangelicals would go away if we just knew our history as Christians. I mean, think about Israel in the Old Testament. One of the greatest errors of Israel that led to so much sin was that they forgot their own history. They did not remember what God had done and what God had said. And that's why the most repeated command in the Old Testament is remember, remember. God has spoken and he has worked through his church over the last 2,000 years. And it's important we know to some degree the great heritage that we have as Christians. And it will help protect us against false teachers. Let me illustrate now, I want to be clear, this isn't the end-all, be-all of knowing whether or not someone is a false teacher, but it's a warning sign that ought to make you a little cautious. For example, if some Christian leader starts teaching a certain idea that not only has never been taught in the history of the church, but also contradicts what has been taught through the history of the church, it's probably not something worth believing. And that Christian leader isn't probably worth following. Like, if for 2,000 years, Christians didn't see what this man was seeing, it's probably not because all the Christians for the last 2,000 years were ignorant. In fact, read the church fathers or the medieval theologians or the reformers. They didn't lack intelligence. These men and women knew their Bibles way better than most of us today. Knowing our history, knowing what the church has always believed pertaining to God, Christ, morality over the centuries gives us some kind of guidance and discernment when certain individuals come along and start promoting ideas that are completely contrary to what the church has always taught. Now, let me be frank. I think issues pertaining to sexuality today are exactly this. For all of church history, the church has always taught very clearly what the Bible has said pertaining to sexuality and sexual practices. And now, over the last 60 years, all of a sudden, so-called professing Christians are saying that for 2,000 years, the church got it wrong on its teaching regarding sexuality. I mean, imagine if some Christian leader today started promoting the idea 
that adultery is actually not sin. That the authors of scripture were bound by their time. They didn't understand the nature of relationships and marriage. All of us would know that this Christian leader is teaching falsehood. And I don't think it's any different with what the Bible says about other sexual practices and behavior. We need to know our history and what the church has always believed. That's one of the reasons why we will sometimes read the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed in our services. These have been given to us from the church to give us boundaries, so to speak, of what we are to believe and not believe as Christians pertaining to who God is and what he has done. Secondly, don't be so easily swayed by power and ability Be swayed by virtue. Don't be so easily swayed by power and ability. Be swayed by virtue. These false teachers that Jesus warns against were gifted. They did the miraculous. The giftedness and ability of a person has no bearing on whether that person is godly. You see, you may, you may think, oh, I love Pastor Peter's preaching. I mean, his preaching it just shows how godly he is. No, it doesn't. I could be the greatest preacher to ever live, and it has no bearing on whether I'm godly. I'm not the greatest preacher to ever live, by the way, but it has no bearing on whether I'm godly. I could communicate the word of God so clearly, and it has no bearing on whether I'm godly. See, we're so prone I think especially in evangelical circles, we're so prone and so easily swayed by giftedness and power. And so underwhelmed and so indifferent to character and virtue. We often would rather give our allegiance to a man who wows and displays power than a man marked by humility and meekness. Don't be swayed by power, but character. Don't be swayed by giftedness, but virtue. Never fall for the narrative that says, well, God is using him, therefore his character isn't all that important. God also used the ruler of Persia to deliver Israel. Wasn't a godly man. Third and final thing, and the most important Learn the voice of Jesus. Learn the voice of Jesus. The greatest way to protect yourself from false prophets is having a deep familiarity with the voice of Jesus. Jesus said in John 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The more you know what his voice sounds like, the more you know what his voice doesn't sound like. I remember D.A. Carson talking about his father and how his father wasn't an intense theological thinker or anything like that, but he loved his Bible. He didn't have the theological categories or necessarily the proper theological terms, but Carson says his dad could always smell theological error because he was immersed in the Word of God. He knew the voice of Jesus. Christian, your greatest weapon against false teachers and ravenous wolves is not spending your time trying to spot them out. Your greatest weapon against false teachers and ravenous wolves is being immersed in the words of Jesus, learning his voice and following that voice. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to say this to you. There are many voices vying for your devotion and allegiance. Many. But only one voice is worthy of your devotion and allegiance. Only one voice. There's only one person in all of human history where you can trust every word that he has said. And that is Jesus Christ. He alone 
is the true prophet of God. He only speaks what his father tells him to speak. He has never erred in what he has said. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. There is no one else who can give you eternal life but the one who is life himself. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, Moses prophesies about this future prophet that God is going to raise up. And this is what he says. The Lord your God, he's speaking to Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. God has raised up that prophet, and his name is Jesus. But he's more than a prophet. He's the eternal Son of God, or as John puts it, he is the Word of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the question I leave you with is this. Will you believe his words and follow him? Because if you don't believe him, you will believe someone else. And that someone else will lead you down the path of destruction. Listening to the voice of Jesus and following him will lead to everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, how we love the voice of your Son. And I simply ask that you would deepen our love for his voice. And that when he speaks and when he calls, we would listen and we would follow. In Jesus' name, amen.